it's not like you apply for the position of making history. You work your butt off to go after dream job after dream job. You put your head down and you do the work and you, you feel that you have to do better work for less respect for the majority of your journey. And then by happenstance, if you find that you've made history, it's this daunting moment. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, it's Carly. Today, Elaine Welteroth joins me on Skimmed from the Couch. She is a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist, and a judge on the new Project Runway. Elaine is also known for her groundbreaking work while she was the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue magazine. At the time she was appointed, she was the youngest ever editor-in-chief at a Condé Nast title. Elaine, big fan over here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome to Skimmed from the Couch. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So going to give you our our first question. Everyone gets it. You got to skim your resume for us. Ooh, okay. How far do you want to go back? This is your, your resume, your skim. You tell me. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I'm going to start where it all started back at Hometown Buffet in Newark, California, where I was the dancing bee. I was the, I was the, the host like in the bee costume. That bee is still like my spirit animal. I feel like I got like my best dance moves from being in that hot, huge costume because all my inhibitions went away and I just had the time of my life and I got paid to just stand there and dance around and have fun with little kids. I had lots of jobs. I've been working ever since I could get my my work permit, lots of jobs at the mall and that kind of thing. And then when I when I was in college, I I worked two jobs. Anyway, flash forward to like my professional career post college, I essentially stalked a woman named Harriet Cole, who was the editor-in-chief of Ebony. And she eventually conceded and and let me be her intern. Uh, My very first job in the industry was as the intern at Ebony Magazine. And I sort of worked my way up to beauty and style editor there. Then I jumped over to Condé Nast and I worked as the beauty writer and editor at Glamour Magazine. Then I was promoted to senior beauty editor. And that's when I got the big call that sort of changed my life. First from Eva Chen, who was then the beauty and health director at Teen Vogue. And so when she called me about this coveted position that she was leaving and thought I would be a great fit for it, I freaked out. And I just thought, I like am not worthy. <laughs> I'm not worthy. Oh my God. I don't know if I'm ready. And, you know, to be the director of a department, I was only 25 years old and I had just been promoted where I was. So I remember I told her like, you know, I just, if you called me six months from now, a year from now, I would feel better about going after this job. But like at this, in this climate and the recession, I, I just got promoted. I don't want to be labeled this 
ungrateful millennial entitled brat. And then they find out that I went for the job and I don't get the job. And then I'm like blacklisted. So I just was too afraid. And I said, I said, no. And then lo and behold, Eva worked her magic. And next thing you know, I got the call to interview properly for her position. And by that point, my boss had given her blessing. So there was just sort of a clear path. And I got that job. I became the beauty and health director at Teen Vogue at 25. And then at 29, I became the editor of Teen Vogue. So Amy Astley was the founding editor at Teen Vogue. She moved on and I was promoted. And then I decided to take a leap of faith in, I think, 2018. I took a leap of faith after I felt like I had accomplished everything on my bucket list and more at Teen Vogue. I I just, I had my heart set on new goals and I started my own business and I wrote a book called More Than Enough, which came out in June of 2019, just last year. I can't believe it's been a year. And the sky's the limit, all the things that now I'm just doing so many things. I feel like now I'm essentially (laughs) the editor in chief of my own life. So it's like everything that I was actually doing as an editor in chief, but people didn't really probably know that it was a part of that job are all the things I'm doing now. I'm just doing them for my own business. So I do a lot of speaking, a lot of writing still. I am, will continue to write books. Um, but I was really interested in expanding into television, both on camera work, but also scripted work behind the camera. So I'm developing my book into an adapted television series and I'm writing my first pilot. And so I'm doing all the things. I'm just doing all the things. I have all the job titles now and it's, and it's fun. And I get to kind of say yes to what makes me feel excited and scared and alive and no to the things that make me feel kind of meh. Oh, and I, and I always forget all of it. I also have a, a, a new podcast called Built to Last that spotlights uh, small Black-owned businesses that are thriving through the pandemic. Um, also, in, over the last few months, I helped start a nonprofit with my one of my very good friends, Aurora James. It's called the 15% Pledge, and it's a an advocacy group that is sort of rallying um, the retail community to dedicate 15% of their purchasing power to Black-owned businesses. So that's one of my jobs as well. <laughs> Uh, you have a lot of jobs. We can't talk about your career without talking about your childhood. And I think specifically, you know, from reading about you, what's very clear is that you had a strong sense of identity and ambition from an early age. And I feel like every other sentence I'm going to say today is because I follow you on Instagram. But because I follow you on Instagram, I know like I love when you post about your family and you are really open about kind of the foundation that they provided you. So I'd love to hear from you just about your childhood and and how that sort of shaped um, your sense of self. Hmm. Oh, I love that question. Rarely in uh, business interviews do you get to talk about your childhood and your family, I actually think it's really relevant. For a lot of us, we reach this point in our career sometime where we lose steam or we lose motivation or focus or we forget our why or our our purpose starts to feel a little hazy or our, our passion feels like elusive. For me, whenever I've hit those points, I am able to ground myself by looking back and remembering who I was when I was a little girl. I look back and I think about what brought me joy as a child and how I played before I was paid and before there was like 
stress and fear and responsibility and pressure, if you mine those memories, there's often little gems and like, you know, little crumbs that lead you directly back to your aha moment of like, this is what I do well. This is what I, this is my zone of genius. This is what I do that makes me feel most alive. And for me, when I did that exercise a few years ago before I wrote my book, when I was in the middle of a career transition, I remember third grade being in the backyard of my, one of my best friend's homes and we decided one weekend that we were going to start our own beauty salon in her backyard. And we trawled around the whole cul-de-sac and knocked on doors and asked everyone to give us their excess cardboard so that we could build stations and build a front desk. And we, we built everything ourselves from scratch. And everyone thought we were crazy. They were like, what are you, what? You're doing what? Okay, girls, here, here, here's my trash. Do with it what you will. And we were like, we're going to come back and invite you to our salon. I mean, we were so resourceful and so enterprising. And we just, we put so much love into it. And we used scraps to build this thing and like to bring this vision we had to life. And then we went around and promoted it to the neighborhood. We knocked on doors, invited the ladies to come get their nails done, get their hair combed, get a head massage, hand massage. Our imagination was incredible. And what we realized then is that we wanted to be our own bosses and we wanted to be creative entrepreneurs. We believed we could make anything happen. We also started a magazine, which I remember using like a thin card piece of like cardboard, drawing pictures of women in fashions, pasting it onto that cardboard and then wrapping it in saran wrap for the glossy feel. When I look back at that, I think how wonderful that we had the freedom and the space uh, to just be creative and to use our imaginations and to play with whatever we had access to and to be resourceful with that. A lot of the ways that I work, even in an office environment, remind me of the way I worked in her backyard, you know, like, you know, and I started my career in the middle of a, at the very beginning of the recession. So being resourceful was a huge asset. Harriet Cole, you mentioned her in the beginning when you skimmed your resume. Talk to me about kind of the, the gentle stock, we call it sometimes, which is like how you get your foot in the door. Walk us through how you were able to maneuver getting your foot into the door into opening then another door. It was more than a gentle stock, I have to admit. It was like a full court press type of stock. It actually involved reaching back into my childhood self and reviving that magazine that I had created when I was in third grade. I created a magazine with like all of my writing samples. I did like a photo shoot. It was me on the cover. It's so embarrassing. I did that. That's so weird. I did the exact same thing. Text me your cover. I found it the other day. It's so funny when you find those things. So I, so the cover of the magazine was like, pitching me for this job, this internship that I desperately wanted. I found her assistance information, somehow contact information online. And I just, I emailed over that magazine that I had created and the video. And I wrote this really personal, thoughtful, very intentional email. And it was like, it was a letter that I also snail mailed. that was very tailored to 
Harriet and why I thought Harriet in particular was the woman that I wanted to model my career after and how much it would mean to me to to just have 15 minutes of her time for an informational interview. And I called so often that they thought I was insane. I don't remember it, but it was probably like every other couple of days. And I remember finally getting to the point where I kept getting shut down. Like she wasn't, she wasn't available. She wasn't available. They wouldn't give me a date. So I just was like, would you mind telling me her coffee order? And the assistant was like, excuse me? You really stalked her. Oh, I really stalked. Basically, I offered to bring coffee to Harriet from 3,000 miles away. And that was the moment where the assistant was just like, okay, do not show up at our office. And why don't we just go ahead and set up this interview so that basically so that I could stop calling. And so I will never forget, I was a recent graduate and like literally days after graduating, I got this informational interview with this career role model of my dreams, Harriet Cole. And she had set aside 15 minutes for me. That 15 minutes turned into 45 minutes. And there was so much synergy on the call. And at the end of the call, I was like, if there's ever an opportunity to work with you, please keep me in mind. And you know, if I never hear from you, just know that you already changed my life. And it's like such a good line, but it was also totally true. And I just really meant that. I was on fire when I hung up that phone with her. And I remember planting all the seeds. I was like, I had plan A through Z on how I was going to move to New York to become a magazine editor. And I knew because of Harriet's blueprint that magazines were only going to be the first step. I was going to use that as a platform to build my skill set, to, you know, really learn and to develop a network and to grow as a professional. And at some point there would be a moment where I would need to take a leap of faith and build my own kind of multi-pronged creative entrepreneurial business like Harriet did and write books like Harriet did and be in TV. Like she created this singular space for herself that existed at the intersection of black culture, um, spirituality and style and even politics. And I'd never seen a woman, let alone a black woman that I could identify with do that. And then lo and behold, Five months later, out of the absolute blue, she called me back on my cell phone. And I thought it was a butt dial. I I could not fathom that she had saved my number and called me back, but she did. And she invited me to come support her on set. She had a shoot in California. I needed an assistant for the day. She said, if things go well, there could be an opportunity waiting for me in New York, but let's just take it day by day. And so I was like, Freaking out. I went down to this shoot. It turned out to be a cover shoot with Serena Williams. That does not happen. It was so funny. Like that day, I remember thinking like, I am living out my black girl, Lauren Conrad dreams right now. (laughs) I felt like I was on the set of The Hills. And then she hired me. She hired me as her intern at the end of that shoot. And the rest is history. I moved to New York to work for her. And it was sort of a Cinderella career dream come true. It's like, this does not happen. And I'm so, I'm so aware that, of how rare and how singular and how special that, that whole thing was, but that whole journey and that whole ride was. But I think there's a lot of universal kind of takeaways that a lot of ambitious people in whatever field they're in could say they 
relate to. You know, it's like the relentlessness of going after it, like the fearlessness and the unapologetic approach to just going after really what you want and finding someone who inspires you in a singular way, not casting this broad net and being kind of vague in your pursuits, but being really focused and deliberate in your, in your pursuit of what you want um, and not giving up. I think those are kind of universal themes that I think anyone can take away. As you rose through the ranks and at really like an unprecedented speed, I will say, you've spoken about how you felt yourself having to fit into certain molds and you've used the phrase code switching in order to be successful within predominantly white publishing houses. Was there a moment where that shifted? I think, you know, especially for women of color that are listening to, to this show right now, what is your advice around how to navigate that feeling, that moment when you are in a situation like that at work and you feel that way? Yeah, I absolutely felt that way for, you know, bulk of my career, but also my my whole education. You know, often I was the only brown girl, black girl in the room. And that feeling of otherness is so central to the, the, the formation of your identity And I think for many years, you wrestle with that and you think that you can conform your way out of it or be a chameleon and and blend in and overcome your otherness in order to be accepted and respected and to rise through the ranks. And, you know, the reality is in certain spaces that was almost required of me or so I felt. And it was part of a survival mechanism. But what I learned very quickly, my turning point came when I became the first Black beauty director in Kanye Nast history. And I put that in air quotes because it's not like you apply for the position of making history. You work your butt off to go after dream job after dream job you put your head down and you do the work and you, you feel that you have to do better work for less respect for the majority of your journey. And then by happenstance, if you find that you've made history, it's this daunting moment. There's a lot of, there's like mixed, mixed feelings that comes with that because you, first of all, you recognize that it's overdue. Any first that we're celebrating in the 2010s and you know, still today, I mean, we just celebrated the first Black woman, also South Asian woman, who's just, you know, reached the highest office in our country in 2020. It's taken too long. These are overdue history-making moments. And so there's this feeling of like, oh, this is a signal, actually, not just, uh, we love a celebration of a first. We do. We love to celebrate the first. But I think we also need to recognize in those moments that they're actually indicators of just how much more progress we actually need to demand or we need to fight for. And we also need to create space for more public discourse about what it takes to be first. Like, what's the reality of the cuts and the bruises and the scars that come from being a first and breaking through those glass ceilings? And then the other part of it is recognizing very quickly the responsibility that comes with being a first. So I had sort of navigated my career after, you know, I started out in Black media and then I crossed over into, you know, Condé Nast, mainstream media, and it was a bit of a culture shock, frankly. 
And I felt myself shrinking by the day to conform, to fit in. Literally, like I would wear my hair in like the tightest, sleekest little bun because I didn't want the hands touching my hair. I wore clothes that didn't even really fit my essence because I felt I, that was the culture and I wanted to fit in there. But once I came, went to Teen Vogue and I, and I was sort of held up as this example and this, you know, I was celebrated as this diversity hire in, in, a, in a sense, I felt like if I continue operating along with the status quo, then I am doing a disservice to all of the outsiders, all the folks who feel like they're othered, all the folks who never had anyone in this position to represent for them. So I, it's time for me to lean in to all of those qualities that make me different, that make me other, and put them at the forefront of my why I'm here, my why for why I'm here and infuse my work with that mission and that purpose and center folks who have been marginalized for too long. This turning point was really empowering for me because it allowed me to draw upon all that I had learned from my early days of my career at Ebony Magazine, learning how to celebrate the outside voice, learning how to celebrate Black culture, Blackness, Black beauty in a world where we are marginalized. And I could take that and bring it to mainstream media and also create space for a number of other communities to feel like they had proper representation, both behind the scenes in creating the stories. And also Teen Vogue became uh, this like intersectional place where everyone could feel celebrated and, and seen. The important thing for, for, for me then and now, and I will never stop preaching this, is that you can't change the stories without changing the storytellers. That is the only way to deliver authentic representation. And, you know, it applies in the media space, but it also applies in policy, you know, in terms of the policymakers who are writing these laws. And so that's part of why I'm so excited along with, I think everyone who's probably listening to this podcast right now about seeing Kamala in that seat because she knows what it means to be othered and to be overlooked, to be underestimated, to be counted out, to have to work 10 times harder for half the respect. She understands, she comes from a culture that's been overcriminalized and she's been operating from within the system for so long to be able to change the system from the inside out. And we need those kinds of change agents in government. We need them in corporate America. We need them in the VC community. You know, we need them on the front lines of activism. And I think this is a moment where folks are leaning into their full identities and using them, using that to, to empower their purpose wherever they are, wherever they find themselves in their careers. I love what you said about like leaning into your why. And I think that is you know, if there's one takeaway to me like that, that is it, which is, is leaning into like, what are you, what is each of us bringing to the table and how do you embrace not only your own otherness, but others, you know, when I listen to you talk and when I read about you, we're, I think the same age. And I feel like you come off so much wiser than me and Danielle, I will say. And why I say that is because I think your, your sense of purpose is contagious. Like you very clearly like have created a path for yourself. It's so admirable, but you're also human. And like, when do you fall apart? How does stress affect you? What are those moments like for you? First of all, you guys have built a digital empire 
okay, that people have been, been trying to figure out how to replicate and all the compliments to you guys. Seriously, I'm so impressed with what you've built. But yeah, stress is real. And I have not been great at managing my stress or my time throughout my career. You know, when I started my career, I found this quote randomly on the internet one day that said, bite off more than you can chew and chew as fast as you can. And that became my career mantra. I literally, I looked back one day, I I Googled that and I was like, that quote is attributed to Crocodile Dundee. Like, why did I think that that was a worthy career mantra? I don't know, but let me tell you, I would revise that career mantra today because while it served me well for a certain amount of time, I think that true success requires a different approach. And when I say success, I'm talking holistically, looking at your the whole picture of your life. I think self, self-development is much more holistic than just your professional life. And I spent a lot of time and energy developing my professional self and going after those pursuits wholeheartedly. But I am just finding out now in this pandemic in my 30s that there are a whole bunch of personal well-being, self-development areas that I have been neglecting severely. And I have not nurtured and cultivated these other parts of myself nearly as much as I have the professional side. So I feel like right now I I am really being intentional about just investing more in all of these other areas that I have not spent very much time in, including just like really basic things like feeding myself, like making a meal. I've joked multiple times in this pandemic, like if this is the end of the world and like we end up like having to fend for ourselves out there and, and I'm like, I'm, I'm not surviving. Like the tools that I have in my toolbox do not apply. Like I, I couldn't feed myself, let alone a community. So creating that space and that ritual of taking care of myself, learning how to cook, not just for myself, but for other people, creating more intentional time to cultivate these relationships in my life that mean so much to me, giving back and figuring out what my role is within my larger collective community outside of my work, all of that makes you wholly successful. And so I recognize I've fallen short in those ways. And I think in terms of stress management, the, the thing that I've learned in my 33 years is something that my mom had always said to me growing up, which is you're no good to nobody if you're no good to yourself. And even when I had an executive coach at one point, um, and I would tell her kind of all these things that were going on, and I was coming to her for guidance and like, how do I address this? What's the email that I should send? And, how and she'd always frustratingly start with, how's your self-care? You're like, that's the last thing I want to talk about right now, but she's right. Right. Did you hear what I just said about what this person said to me? Or did you hear about this situation that needs to be cleaned up? And no matter what, she would always bring the conversation back around to, what are you doing for you? How's your sleep? How's your eating? And inevitably, my answers were always like, shit, they're shit. And if I'm not taking care of myself, there's no way I can... I can come to work and be my best self. I'm almost at a disadvantage in every area of my life if I'm not carving out space to take care of myself. Um, We are going to move into our lightning round segment and we're going to do it so fast. Okay, do it, do it. 
Morning person or night owl? Night owl for sure. What is the last TV show you binge watched? Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Why do you think it's important to have female leaders in your industry? Because they show us what's possible because they give us a blueprint for how to lead our own lives and how to dream beyond what we might've thought was possible without them. One of my Instagram followers wanted me to ask you, who's your favorite designer? Too impossible, too impossible to say. Second question was, if an ice cream truck pulled up to you right now, what do you get? Oh my God, I'm so not an ice cream person, guys. I'm not into dairy. I don't know that sounds so boring. What's your dessert? Go-to dessert. You know what my go-to dessert is? Now, because of the pandemic, now that I'm a baker, banana bread. I'll send you my recipe. It's from my friend Aurora. And I like to put... I like to put raisins in it and chocolate chips. That's the little secret. I'll send you my address. I'm I'm ready for my banana bread. Congratulations on everything. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female-founded companies. We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim From The Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. My name is Chloe Hines. I am the owner and operator of Hungry Bunny Virtual Donut Shop, which is a online virtual treat shop. We offer 100% vegan donuts, cookies, and shortly but soonly introducing cubby snacks. We are based In the middle of the map, in the Midwest, I am currently located in Derby, Kansas. COVID happened and I was led to make something that was originally a side hustle, my full-time hustle, um, being laid off from work. Also, my boyfriend Lawrence definitely pushed me in the pool and just gave me that push that I needed to get started. So it was no longer just a piece of paper or a dream in my journal. It originally started out, I did not have any idea if one person or two people would even buy the products. And I was like, oh, you're just biased. You know, you're just saying they're good because, you know, you're my friends or family or boyfriend and they actually are good and people actually enjoy them. And I really have always wanted to have some type of food delivery service because I love food delivery service. And so why not make it strict to sweets? My favorite flavor is definitely the maple. Uh, Maple still reigns supreme in my heart. And then I also love the OG, which is just the original vanilla cake donut. You can find us on all social media and online, the good old internet. If you go to Google and put in www.hungrybunnyict.com, our Instagram is at Hungry Bunny and Hungry has two U's in our Instagram tag. And then we also have a Facebook page, which is Hungry Bunny Virtual Donut Shop. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 